This morning, I wanted to share with you um, what is obviously uh, what we are all facing. And uh, I have so many other things that I would love to share, but you know what it's like. You know, you, uh, you couldn't really um, navigate your way through without actually dealing with what's right on the top of your heart and most pressing to most people. It's on their minds, in the forefront of their minds. It's what everybody has to deal with in real life. And so um, I wanted to talk with you about what will your future COVID testimony be? What will your future COVID era testimony be? Because, you know, in not so long from now, <laughs> everybody will be looking back to this moment and everybody will be measuring how you individually and the church corporately dealt with what we are going through right now. I know that this is true for me in many ways. I'm thinking of when my boy was before school and how was I then? And I think of when my wife and I first got married and how was I then? And I think of my testimony even prior to marriage and, and there are so many things uh, I regret. I'm sure maybe you don't have any regrets, but <laughs> you know, there are many things we all regret and we wish we did differently. We wish we made different decisions, acted, acted differently, knew better had um, more internal fortitude and strength to say no to what we should say no to, yes to what we should say yes to, stand up, stand up for what we should stand up for, stand against what we should stand against. But as we go through this, America is currently having, as you know, a panic attack. However, panic attacks eventually calm down. Our society is currently in a fever, and uh, fevers eventually break. I'm reminded of the Spanish flu in 1918. 1918, it took about, they estimate, 50 million lives, the Spanish flu. And then it broke, and uh, it just went away. With uh, developed medicine and better science, of course, we have a better chance of our current pandemic also coming to an end and um, so right in the middle of it you don't see the end inside but there'll be an end and there'll be a time when people will look back to this moment and see how we responded so I would like to suggest to you our task as the body of Christ at this time is to maintain our testimony for when it's all over. <clears throat> One of the great lessons I think anybody can learn is that you have to decide now what you would like to experience then. Delayed gratification is one of the greatest indicators of a person's future life. And if people don't have the ability to delay gratification now, of course they're going to have less by the time they get there. But so it is in everything. We have to decide now what we want then. We have to decide now what we will choose then. And it is important for us to have a greater perspective than the very moment that we are in because moments come and moments go. And eventually, when a regret sets in, <clears throat> it's cemented. 
it actually doesn't go anywhere. You know, the things I regret today is impossible for me to change now. The only possible way for me to have changed this regret is if I made a different decision back in time. So what kind of testimony do you believe we as a church are going to have after the coronavirus pandemic is over? I don't know about you if you remember this, but not so long ago, 20 years ago actually, was Y2K. <clears throat> and some people, do you guys remember Y2K? And uh, some people, out of fear of the global grid going down and shutting down, sold all their homes and properties before the end of that year. And then other people, I remember, thought all the money was going to be worthless when the clock strikes 12. So they basically uh, spent all their money and invested all their money in stuff that eventually didn't have value. And then there were those I knew who stocked up so much food that three years later, <clears throat> without a global meltdown, they were still eating canned food out of their basement slash bunker. <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> oh, it was funny. Never seen so much canned food in my life. Y2K. Now, in that case, in, in hindsight, the fear of uh, subjective potential threat caused people to totally and completely alter their lives, making some real radical and irrational decisions. But it was all based upon a subjective fear that actually never happened. A subjective fear, not an objective one. You see, an objective threat is, is a storm. An objective threat is, is a, a wildfire. An objective threat is, um, you know, when there's an actual earthquake or where there's an actual accident. But in this case, it was a subjective truth, right? It was a subjective fear and threat. People were believing the worst was going to happen. And they made all these very irrational decisions. And today, when you look back, you go like, which I was part of in a way, uh, but I kind of enjoyed it though, because I've always enjoyed like, <clears throat> at that point, I was much younger. So I loved thinking that I'm in a movie, right? <laughs> but um, now, you know, I remember the pastor I was working for at the time who really pushed this idea in a big way um, and um, pushed the idea that the world was going to shut down after the fact, of course, lost just about all of his credibility and his judgment for future events. Nobody wanted to believe him anymore every time he shouted, he cried wolf. Uh, in other words, what I'm saying to you is your then testimony matters now. Your then testimony matters now. We have to now decide what history is going to say about us, the church, about us, those who believe in Jesus Christ, about us who have the word of God to stand upon, the promises of God to believe and hold on to. So the question we are facing is, what are people going to say about the church's response? And since most churches are still closed and have been closed for almost an entire year, the question is, is that the right thing to do? Was the church brave in closing? Was the church loving? Was that the loving thing to do? Was that the empathetic, empathetic thing to do? Were they showing empathy or were they... Self-serving. Is the church going to be viewed as a church who was pitiful? 
Was the church going, is the church eventually, in 10 years from now, going to be viewed as a church that was cowardice? <clears throat> Last week, I shared with you that here at home in the U.S., according to a senator that I watched being interviewed, uh, listed that the divorce rate is up 34% now during these lockdowns. 34% during COVID. Broken homes. Alcohol binge drinking is up 40%. Suicides is up 145%. In July this year, Illinois already had 2,400 business owners lose their businesses. Down the drain goes their life work. Down the drain goes their dreams. Down the drain goes their bread and their butter and the opportunity they afforded many other. So we can't say that the decisions that have been made have necessarily only been good because you don't know. You don't know. It's the unknown. But all we know is that there have been other issues that take place because of it, right? I want to read you an article that I saw yesterday. I'll just ask Khan to throw the, the heading up there. But um, it says in this article that Japan is struggling with a mental health crisis. And I'm reading the article to you. Japan is struggling with a mental health crisis as the coronavirus pandemic rages on, with more people dying in one month from suicide than from COVID-19 all year long. This month right here that we are going through, more people have committed suicide in Japan than what Japan has lost for an entire year due to COVID. Uh, I mean, th th it's a staggering figure to consider. Being complete, a country completely locked down in order to protect people from COVID, yet now dealing with thousands more committing suicide. <clears throat> the National uh, Police Agency said suicide surged to 2,153 in October alone and currently standing at 17,000 or more than 17,000 people taking their own lives to date. More than 17,000 people. Experts say that the pandemic has exasperated mental health issues due to the prolonged lockdowns, isolation from family members, unemployment and other financial concerns and a lack of school structure. So there you go. I mean, those numbers don't lie. What are you going to do? You're going to ask the question, was this a good idea? Now, you know me, for those of you, and everybody knows me well, personally, but for those watching this and listening to this, if you have a compromised immune system and you feel like you need quarantine, then that is your decision. You should do what you know is the right thing to do. That might be the best thing for you, but you don't uh, get to shut other people down who don't feel the same way about their health. You don't get to shame others who do not fear as well as you do. When all is over and uh, we look back in 
see how much damage we were willing to cause by shutting down and shouting down and shaming people who needed to connect socially, who needed to keep their small business open so they could survive financially, who needed to send their kids to school, who needed to have family over for Thanksgiving and Christmas, and that's the reason I want to talk about this, who needed to, uh, who desired to attend their church. When the pandemic is over and the panic is over, are those Christians and those churches who chimed in by shouting down and shaming people, throwing them into bankruptcy, are they going to repent? Oh, they're going to find a theological means to justify where they stood on the issue. But there is no theology to justify fear. There is no theology that justifies fear. Especially a subjective fear. <clears throat> and the reason I feel pressed to speak on this is and address this is because if ever there's a place inside of this world where fear ought to be absent, it should be in the body of Christ. Because we are only to have one fear, right? And that is the fear of the Lord. And the one who fears the Lord fears nothing else. Because the worst possible thing that could happen to you, the worst possible thing that could happen to you, also is the greatest possible thing that could ever happen to you. For us who are in the body of Christ, if there's a place where there should be no fear, it is here. Where there's a place, if there's a place in the whole entire world where there should be complete sanity and clear thinking, it should be here. If there's a place anywhere in the world where there should be a tremendous amount of compassion for people who, I mean, think about that suicide rate. More dying of suicide now than Corona itself, if there is a place where hearts should burst with compassion and empathy for these people who have lost everything, and while those who are demanding they shut down haven't given up their salaries, they all nicely tucked away and taken care of. And by the way, they, they don't even need the salary they have. Most of them are already millionaires and billionaires, right? Talking about our governors and our, you know, all, the, all these uh, rulers. Because consider the fact that we are a nation of the governed by laws, not by rulers, right? We're a nation governed by laws, not by rulers. And, but yet these people who are already so extremely wealthy also have great salaries. And by the way, for instance, you know, getting 25% increases in a year because they did so great in shutting everything down, only then to cause everybody else to lose everything. You know, we, we, have, to, we have to realize that these things, the, if there's going to be a place of sanity anywhere, it should be those of you who have made scriptures your filter of thought. Because... There's only one place of normalcy, right? And that is Scripture. There's only one thing that's normal. Everything else is abnormal. I remember going to college. I was almost going to say when it was. It was a long time ago. <laughs> and I remember having scriptural conversations with people. And the moment they've read a little bit of Freud or they've read a little bit of Marx or something, now suddenly they're, they're like these, you know, these um, um, professionals, right? 
and they're going to fix the whole world because they've read the introduction to a book somewhere. And then, you know, they would always imply, like, isn't that archaic, what you believe? Isn't what you're reading there, believing and speaking, archaic? Isn't your position really, really old, a little outdated? Haven't we progressed from back in the day when scriptures were written? But let me tell you, folks, the only possible way, and time will prove over and over and over again, has, is, and always will, that the point of normalcy is scripture. Nothing more just than scripture. Nothing more fair than scripture. Nothing more balanced than scripture. Nothing more accurate than scripture. Nothing more sane than scriptures. Nothing more normal than scriptures. And so while we walk through this time that seems so unbalanced, insane, and, and, and unknown, the, we have the benefit of Scripture. And you should stand squarely upon the Word of God and say, this is normal. I know everybody else has a feeling, oftentimes a subjective feeling, some objective, but the point is normalcy doesn't happen in my experience. Normalcy is Scripture. I have to always drive this point home. There are two kinds of truth, right? There's a subjective truth, and then there's an objective truth. A subjective truth is, well, I feel that that is true. My truth is subject to how I feel. My, I, I have an opinion. I believe this is true. Well, that means that truth is subject to your perspective. That's a subjective truth. It comes from your emotions. It comes from your thoughts. It comes from your conclusions, it comes possibly even from your experience. It's subject to your experience. That's the truth that you live with, many people claim. But we as Christians, we don't live with subjective truths because we don't live by what we think, feel, or have experienced. We live by the Word of God. That's an objective truth. Why? Because there it is. It's right there on your shelf. It's in your lap. You're holding it. You're looking at it. It's coming to you, not from you. So real Christians live with an objective truth that comes to them from Scriptures. But many people today, their truth doesn't come to them from Scriptures. It comes from them. And so idol worship has become one of the greatest problems in our world today, idolizing their own perspectives, their own feelings, their own views, and themselves. So, the apostles we see, they faced grave dangers, didn't they? Yep. Yet they turned the whole world upside down, preaching right in the midst of all the dangers they faced. Some of them were beaten, imprisoned, stoned to death, even crucified upside down, but that did not stop the church. It was a great danger, but that did not stop the church. Now, I know that the church is not this building. I get it. And that we are the church. We are the ecclesia, the ecclesia. And the ecclesia is the gathering together of God's saints, right? That's the ecclesia, the gathering together of God's people. 
But the word actually is the public gathering together of God's people. That is ecclesia. And my point is the question, did we do the right thing by shutting down all gatherings? That's the question. Did we do the right thing? What is our testimony going to be as a church? These apostles and the early church fathers faced the threats of being thrown into, into a coliseum with wild animals, fighting wild animals to the death, just for the sports and entertainment of everything, for others. Reformers faced being burnt at the stake, yet they too never cowered. So throughout history, when we look back, we see, we see a church triumphant, in a very, very cruel world filled with threats, real objective threats, not even a subjective fear. It wasn't subjective. It was actually real. Now, I'm not saying that the coronavirus is not actually real. I have to reiterate this over and over. I know that it's there. I know the flu is there. I know everything else is there, you know, that also kills people. Suicide is there. All these things are real. I'm just telling you what the church did in times of danger with great threats. They never cowered. Now let's jump 10 years into the future, to the year 2020, what, 2035. 15 years, 20 years, 30 years. What are people going to say about how today's church faced the threat of the virus? Just a question. So we shut down all churches. Why? Because there's a virus with a 0.04 fatality rate. Chances of 99.4 some, you know, 6 some percent chance of surviving. So now I know, you know, I have to say this. But if, if, you are a if you have a stable employed job, you're stably employed, you have a great job and nicely tucked away in your secured little corner in the world and many are blessed to have that. You have, still have a good job. You still have, maybe even you and your husband have a good job and you don't really have um, the pressure other people have. As a church, I just really want to encourage you to um, not show anger to those who act differently than you do um, when somebody else breaks a guideline in order to keep their business open. I'm just trying to think through what is going to be said about you after the fact. You see, the, the absolute injustice unfolding right now in front of our eyes is the highly paid politicians forcing the hardworking small business owners into bankruptcy. This is the injustice we're facing right now. And, and there should be, things should be said about that. I mean, at least give up your salary. You know, if, if you're the governor, at least give up your salary and show a little bit of compassion that way if you're going to force other people into bankruptcy. This is an unjust balance. And here's the problem. Proverbs 11 verse 1 says that God absolutely detests that. He detests it. So a word of wisdom to those Christians who have a job and security in some way. 
Show compassion towards those who other people are currently shaming. Show compassion to those who other people are not caring for. For instance, I mean, have you considered how long it takes somebody to take that gun and put it to their head and actually pull the trigger? Now, you can do this yourself. You can go and search out the websites, and you can see the amounts of, and it's very difficult to, very difficult to find the total amounts, but you can go to the co coroner's websites, and you can see the amount of people who have actually committed suicide and how they did it, whether it be by gunshot or whether it be by noose or whether it be by overdosing. But you can, you can find all of that. And, and all I'm telling you is when you get to that moment, do you realize how long that person was in torment to get to that moment? Very long. Do you know how many people think about it but haven't done it? It's not just the amount of people who have succeeded in it but those who have attempted it and failed. But not just those who have attempted and failed, but how many of those people who are thinking about attempting it? And how long does it take to get to that point? We don't realize the damage we've caused. And at the same time, when people fall on such hard times, which church do they go to? <laughs> you know, where, do they, where do they go to? The whole entire safety net has been ripped away from people. It's even hard to go see a doctor right now for many. So if you are planning on having a testimony of a loving body of Christ after the fact, we have to consider these things. So as a pastor, I've been trying to wrap my mind around the cause of our current timidity as a church that I view as timidity and I view that we live in a very fragile generation with fragile minds people are sensitive people are on edge they, they hurt and, you know they hurt over everything they're offended about everything they fall apart the drop of a hat they throw tantrums publicly they become anxious about anything and everything very quickly, very, very fragile, um, a generation with a very fragile mind, a very sensitive ego, and people have almost zero resilience against fear, almost zero. When you, cons when you look at this generation and you compare them to previous generations, especially in the church, to see what those people were willing to face, the drop of a hat, and this generation as to what they are unwilling to face. Self-preservation has become the highest priority of all, self-preservation. And I was wondering about that. But here in Leviticus 26, 36, it says this. For those among you who are left, I, God speaks and says, I will bring despair into their hearts in the land of their enemies. I will bring despair into their hearts. Now watch this, it says, God says He brings it, and the sound, this is the result of that despair, and the sound of a scattering leaf will chase them, and even when no one is pursuing, they will flee, as though from the sword, and then they will fall. 
It's an amazing thing. So let me read this to you out of the, um, the, the Good News translation. It says this, I, will, I, God, will make those of you who are still in exile so terrified that the sound of a leaf blowing in the wind will make you run. You will run as if you were being pursued in battle by an army, and you will fall even when there's no enemy near you. Just absolutely freaking out about anything and everything. I wondered what that was about. But the thing that struck me was when that becomes true for a generation, at least in this case, God said that He was the one who did that. I think that there are many things for us as a nation to repent from. Many things. Now, I'm not going to repent for a country. I'm going to repent for my, you know, every single one of us will stand before God for our own sins, right? You will stand before God and you give an account for every single word that you've ever spoken. And, and there, there are many things that we ought to repent from and I don't know. You know, I don't know if it's Darwinism or abortion. I don't know which one will be the greatest but I mean, there's, blood's been shed in this nation in their millions, and who knows? All I'm saying is that right here in Leviticus, of course, that was before the cross. So for those of you who are dispensationalists, you know, you're going to read that differently. But I can tell you now, God has done it in the past. I don't know, um, you know, what kind of argument will come from it. But it's possible for a whole entire generation to be so on edge and lack resilience in such a, such a degree and have such low um, resilience against fear that even the blowing of the wind will cause everybody to run like an army is pursuing them and they will fall even though there's not even an enemy near them. So my word to you this morning is, church, family of God, this is not you. Fear doesn't get the best of you. Fear doesn't, fear doesn't run your life. Fear doesn't cripple your mind. We, we don't fear. Because again, the worst possible thing that could happen to you and I is also the greatest thing that could possibly happen to us. And we, tr we trust and serve a sovereign God and nobody can snatch us from His hand. If we really trust God, we trust in His sovereignty and His ability and His supremacy that He is God and no one else overrides what He wants, desires, and purposes. No one does. He is God. He is God everywhere, all the time, from the top of heaven to the bottom of hell, he is God. He always has been, still is, and always will be. You are safe in His care. So we don't have to fear. Psalm 56 verse 3 says, When I am afraid, watch this verse, I love this. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. You know what's so wonderful about that verse? It actually says this, you know, uh, when... I'm afraid, meaning it is going to happen. It doesn't say if. It says when fear comes to you. However, it gives you clear directives. When fear happens to you is when you must begin to do battle. This is when you go to war. How do you go to war? You put your trust in Him. 
That's what you do. Let me read it to you again. When I'm afraid, I'll put my trust in you. So this is the required response when fear knocks on your door. I trust you, God. What do I trust about God? I trust the fact that my God is good. What else do I trust about Him? That He is sovereign, that He's able, that He's capable, He's sufficient. That He's all-powerful everywhere, all the time, in my life and in my circumstances. I can trust God. What do I trust God with? I trust God with the outcome. That's what I trust Him with. But not just the outcome, I also trust Him with the process. It's almost like a girl saying, you know, God, I trust that you're going to give me a husband, but I don't trust your way of me getting him. I'm going to go get him just the way I want to get him. You know? <laughs> now, if you do it your way, you're probably not going to end up with the one God has for you, okay? <laughs> so you're going to have to not just trust God with the outcome. You have to trust God with how he gets you there. So in this situation that we find ourselves, what does it mean to trust him? Well, we have to know what it means to, to, what it means to trust him when fear comes knocking on our door. Psalm 91, verse 5 and 6 says, You will not be afraid of the, of the terror at night. You will not be afraid of the terror at night. Or of the what? The arrow that flies by day. I love that. Why? Because it's, the one is subjective, the other one is objective. The terror by night. I can't see it, but it's terrifying me. It's a possible potential threat. But then the arrow that flies by day, I see that thing coming. <laughs> so you will not be afraid of the terror by night, subjective fear, or the arrow by day, objective fear, of the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, or the destruction that lays waste at noon. Psalm 99, 91 verse 9 says, For you have made the Lord... For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you. No evil will befall you. No evil will befall you. That's what it says. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. Jacques, I don't have a tent. He's talking about your house. Isaiah 41 verse 10. It says this. Do not fear. I mean, could it, could it have been any clearer? Do not fear. And then it, you know, what I want to tell you about this is, let me read the verse and then I want to explain it to you. Do not fear for I am with you. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I surely will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He starts off by saying, do not fear. Here's what we do when we hear that. Let me just tweet tell you. We hear this, manage your fears. No, he didn't say manage them. He didn't say compartmentalize them. He didn't say, uh, he didn't say smooth them over with counsel or something like that. No, he says stop it. Don't manage your fears. Don't manage your anxieties. Stop having them is what he's saying. Why? For I am with you, says God. I am with you. Do not be anxious. Do not anxiously look about you. Love this statement. Do not anxiously look about you. Can you get the picture of somebody anxiously looking around them? Like, have you ever... Um, the, the <laughs> 
got lost downtown once, but Tina and I used to live there. It was in Chinatown. And I remember Tina and I walking down, down this alley, and uh, there's this restaurant there. Oh, man, we love, we love going there. But this one night, for some, somehow, we went walking, and it was dark, and, and, you know, suddenly you hear all these sounds, and suddenly you're all by yourself, and suddenly everybody's gone, and it's just her and I, and, and a cat runs down, across, you know, around the corner. And uh, immediately, you start anxiously looking around just like this. What are you doing? You're, you're looking for the very thing that could potentially be there to harm you, right? Here it says, Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. What is he saying? Stop searching for things to be anxious over. Stop searching for things to be anxious over. Look, what's going on now? Is the sky really falling? <laughs> You know, which website can I go to now? Which YouTube what can I watch now to see if the sky is really... What? Because we're all sitting here expecting worse things to happen. We're anxiously looking around us. But he says, Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. So stop searching for things to be anxious over. Why? Because I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I surely will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So... I want to share with you, as the early church who read these very same verses walked through their um, times of great threat and subjective fears and objective fears, for most part, they were objective. Um, what did the early church do in their pandemic? How did they respond? Because if there's anything to be said about the early church is, man, they got a great reputation. Because for 2,000 years now, we've looked up to the early church fathers with great admiration. Just how these people were able to face off with wild, hungry animals without ever cowering or taking a step back from their faith in Christ. It was always public. It was always bold. And it was completely without compromise. No matter what the threat was that they were facing. I want to show you an image of a man, Pliny the Elder. Some of you may know him. He was a sort of uh, politician at the time. Um, he lived under the first century, or he lived during the first century, excuse me, and reported to the government on many issues that was happening within his district, and he reported also uh, to the government in regards to what's happening with this new sect called the Way, or Christianity, those Christ followers, those disciples of Jesus. So he lived at a time that the Apostle John was imprisoned in the Isle of Patmos, just to give you a little bit of context. So the lost Apostle was still alive, and so was this man. And as a matter of fact, Pliny the Elder actually died before John passed away on the Isle of Patmos. And um, many of his sayings are still well known. He's quite the, quite the philosopher too. Uh, for instance, he's the guy that 
made the statement, home is where the heart is. He also made the statement, you can be certain that nothing is certain. So among many others, those are two of his statements that he made. But Pliny the Elder reported to the government on the whereabouts and the behavior of the church at that time. The very same church were the very same members that the Apostle Paul evangelized and pulled into a church. The very church he started, Pliny the Elder, now the Apostle Paul died, Pliny the Elder is now giving an account to the government in regards to this group that's been left behind by this great apostle called Paul. And uh, I want to read to you his, re his report to the government. Pliny the Elder wrote to Emperor Trajan, and I quote, I interrogated them, speaking of the Christians, as to whether they were Christians or not. Those who confessed that they were, I interrogated them a second time and a third time, threatening them with punishment if they refused to deny their God. Those who persisted in order, uh, those who persisted, I ordered executed. In other words, he ordered them executed if they refused to deny Christ. They asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing hymns to Christ as to a God. They were saying, our crime is we meet together and we sing to Christ as our God. And then they would also bind themselves with an oath not to do crime but to, and not to commit fraud not to steal, not to commit adultery, not, false, uh, not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. In other words, they were committing to each other. Uh, we commit ourselves to one another that we uh, won't commit crimes, that we won't commit fraud, that we will not lie, we will not commit adultery. That's what they were saying to each other after they were singing hymns. And that they will not... Uh, falsify their trust, and that they will be reliable. Can you believe that? This is what they did. They got together publicly, sang hymns to Christ, and then they started committing to one another. I commit, I will not commit fraud. I commit to you guys, I will not commit adultery. I commit to you guys that I will keep my word. I will commit to you guys that I will stay faithful. And then Pliny the Elder closes his statement. He says, when this was over, all this committing to one another, it was their custom to depart and then to assemble again later to fellowship with food. And um, you, can, you can actually pull up Pliny the Elder's reports that he gave on the church, the early church. And uh, it's just fascinating to read these old historical documents. So if you missed it, however, <clears throat> certain members of this church that Paul himself started had already been executed for refusing to deny their faith in Christ. Some of the church members had already been executed for their faith and for refusing to cancel their gathering togethers. In the face of possible execution, they continued to be the church in a very, very dangerous world. That's how resilient these people were in the face of fear. That's how absolutely 
of steel they were made on the inside. I mean, their internal fortitude, they must, they must have been a strong group of people. Like, yeah, we're going to miss our brother. You know, the one who got executed yesterday. We're going to miss him. So let's get together and let's, let's sing to God a hymn. And let's commit to one another. We will be faithful. Let's commit to one another. We will not commit crimes. We commit to one another that we will be reliable. We will commit to one another. And then let's go and let's eat together. Let's fellowship as brothers and sisters because this is my family. This is how they lived. Nowhere do we see the early church entangled by their circumstances. Nowhere do we actually see where they were under the circumstances. They were always free from it. They were always above it. They always lived not driven by fear, but in God's promises and the hopes of eternal life. They were fueled with their purposes. God had called them to be fruitful. These early Christians were free from worldly fears. These early Christians lived in the face of death constantly. And all you hear from them throughout history is, God be glorified in life and in death. God be glorified in life and in death. God be glorified with this life in this world and in the world hereafter. So, to wrap this up, my encouragement to you is that fear is not something we do. Fear comes to us, but we respond back. We trust God. There's the, fear is what triggers us to do battle. That is your sign. It's time to say, God, here comes my prayer of consecration. I'm going to consecrate to you everything, my whole life, my thoughts. I will consecrate to you my emotions, my heart, my desires. I give you my life. I am yours. Do with me as you wish. You see, I want my son to know that I didn't tell him about all these fearless men of old. And then wouldn't minister to people during COVID because 99.4% survival rate was just too dangerous. To me, you might not see it the way I see it, but I can't have a clearer thought than that. I can't see things in greater perspective than that. What do I want? What example do I want to leave to another generation on how to deal with dangerous times in regards to my Christianity? There's a sifting there's a sifting. Like I, we haven't seen all of it yet. <laughs> We're going to see it pretty soon. But there's a sifting in the church that has been so large, and I'm talking about worldwide. Everybody that used to go to church because they needed to get their, one, their little fix per, every week, you know, just their little motivation, that's over now. That's over now. Because... The moment something, sh the moment it shakes like it's shaking right now, all of those people, the peripherals are always out first off the boat, over, over the edge. 
They're always gone. Absolutely. There's a sifting, and you'll see it's actually larger than people, people realize. But what happens is that Jesus is calling his sheep together. That's what's happening. So I, I want my son to know, I, I, I didn't tell him of all these fearless men of old and then wouldn't minister. Because, you know, you never know. You never know what. I mean, there are a lot of things you do that you never know. You get onto an interstate and you never know. You walk down an alley downtown in Chinatown, you just never know. You get into your car to come to church, you never know. <laughs> yeah, you never know anything. But you can always trust God because you know Him. If we teach our children that is, it is good common sense to give up the church due to a threat this trivial, my question is what do you think will be the strength of conscience and spiritual resilience of our grandchildren? Let me help you. There will be none. If they can stop the church and shut it down with this threat, then let me just tell you, when real threats against the church arise, most of the church will be gone. Most. So I fear for what our testimony is going to be after the fact. Why don't we all say this together? Say this, I do not have sorrow. I do not sorrow like the world. I do not fear like the world. On the contrary, I have a joy the world knows nothing about. I have a peace the world knows nothing about. I have a faith to believe that the world knows nothing about. I thank you, Lord, for your word is your promise to me. Your world, word is normalcy. And I will think like scriptures. I will stand on scriptures. I will be governed by scriptures. When I embrace scriptures, I embrace God's word. God, when I embrace your word, I am embracing you. When I submit to your word, I am submitting to you. When I celebrate your word, I am celebrating you. Thank you for your promises. I do not fear, for you are with me. I do not anxiously look around me, for you are my God. You promised you will strengthen me. You promised you will help me. You promised you will uphold me with your righteous right hand. Amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a praise offering. Thank you, Lord. Amen.